So we'll go ahead and get started. I'll open us in a word of prayer. We'll get going. Lord, I just thank you that we have an opportunity again to open up your word and learn from you and learn from your work in other people's lives that we might see the way you work in our own lives, Lord, that we might understand more of your character and enjoy you even more as we see our own lives play out. Pray that you'll guide our hearts and minds through your word today. Amen. So we're in Genesis 14. Uh, just kind of as a recap, Genesis 12 is Abraham journeying to Egypt. And I have that map up so that we can, because we're going to use the same map. Um, we have him leaving the promised land because of famine. And he ends up coming back after deceiving Pharaoh about his wife. Pharaoh's family is cursed. Pharaoh gets mad at Abram and basically kicks him out of the country, but sends him with even more wealth than he had when he got there. And he returns to the promised land, returns to Israel, to Canaan, I guess would be the proper term at this point. And then uh, we have chapter 13, where we have the strife between Abram and Lot and their, their individuals. And we have Abram settling kind of up in the hill country up here, more by Sea of Galilee area, and Lot down on the east side of the Jordan where it was lush and green and everything was wonderful. And God takes an opportunity there to remind Abram that he isn't pursuing an earthly kingdom, but at the same time promising him all of this land and everything that he can see and has him walk it and says, everything that your foot trods on is yours um, and reminds him that God is still working in him regardless. And then we move to chapter 14 and we'll kind of read chapter 14 as the narrative that it is. And I'll kind of pause to show you what exactly is going on uh, from a from the standpoint of looking at the map, the kind of the estimation. If we had more bandwidth in here, is that the right term that allows me to show video? We'd show a video of this, but we don't really have a bandwidth of it. But you can Google the War of the Kings on YouTube or whatever, and, and you can find actually some pretty good explanations of what's going on here. So we have in verse 1, and it came about in the days of... Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Golan, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zobium, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. So we have these first four kings listed that are coming from actually this northern area up through here, and they're coming down to the kings that actually live down along the Dead Sea and just kind of north and east of it. And we see why they're coming. Um, all these came as allies to the Valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. So in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer, the king, and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, 
in Ashtoreth Karnam, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. So they're coming down from the north, and they're basically picking off all of these kingdoms more to the east of the Dead Sea and uh, where Lot lives, and they extend all the way down here to where the wilderness is, and then they're going to come back up and around. And, and just for the curious in there, again, the Rephaim are mentioned. Uh, there is the idea that, that some of these people are, are giants. We see that when the Israelites eventually do get into um, the land of Canaan. When they spy it out, there's giants in the land. But they come through and they, they pretty much run roughshod over all of the people groups that are now in that area. And then they turn back to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites and lived, who lived in Hezazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adam, Adma and the king of Zeboelim. And the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out, and they arrayed for battle against him in the valley of Siddim, against Chedorlomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Golem, and Emraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elaser, four kings against five. And one of the best ways to teach this is to pronounce each one of those names differently each time, and then at one point <laughs> in the morning, you'll hit it right. So they've come down, they've looped down into the wilderness, and as they turn back, they're kind of coming back up to this, this south, maybe southwest point of the dead, uh, below the Dead Sea here, um, the Valley of Siddim, and that's where these armies now have come out to meet. They realize they've conquered everybody out here, and they're coming around, and so they're coming out to meet them, knowing that battle is imminent, that they're going to make an attempt on them in their kingdoms. They know they haven't been... They haven't been probably paying the, the duties that they are supposed to be paying. They've rebelled against these stronger forces, and now they're going to pay the price. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell into them, but those who survived fled to the hill country. So we see just south of the Dead Sea that this takes this place, kind of where it says Hebron there. We see that they... they um, battle there, and the battle isn't very long-lived, and immediately the kings flee, and there are those who get stuck, literally, and those who make it up into the hill country. So then they, the, the kings of the north, they came and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. And that would have been the normal thing that would have happened in those days is when a kingdom defeats another kingdom, it takes their people and their goods and carry it back with them as not only the spoils, but also to show their dominance and to display when they get back to show the, the people of their own lands what it is they've accomplished and uh, kind of basically like a Super Bowl parade that we do now. You go back to the city that you're from and, and you boast about your, your winnings. And that didn't, I saw that he threw the trophy. Did it like land or what was the problem with it? 
He threw it and somebody caught it. He caught it. Well, I think we can trust him to catch it. I think he's... I don't know why that's an issue. Okay. Anyway, somehow we're... That's my fault. I mentioned Super Bowl parades. Um, so, so they're carrying all the people. This isn't un- that uncommon. Some of those people would become... Uh, slaves, some of those people would become servants, some of those people would be incorporated into the, uh, into the people who have carried them off. We certainly have seen that in Daniel. Um, the, the value of taking some of these foreign cultures isn't just in their forced labor, but they're carrying these people off. But a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living in the Oaks of Mamre, the, uh, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, these were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And we're going to find out later that these other, uh, the, um, the Amorites that are with him, or the Amorites that live near him are going with him, actually. So they're all going to go together to fight. But we have an insight into who Abram is and the wealth of Abram, that he has 318 men born within his house, within his household. So obviously not Abram's. Abram doesn't have any kids. These are kids of all the people that, that, that serve Abram and work for Abram um, that are old enough and capable enough to fight. So you can imagine the, the thousands of people that are around Abram helping maintain his home, his household, his flocks. Uh, it just gives us an insight that this is a very wealthy man in these days. He's a one percenter for sure. Um, and they go in pursuit as far as Dan, and then he divide his forces against them by night. And so what we see here is that After the conquering of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three, they're carried back up and they're going back north, kind of past where Abram's living, and Abram's going to come up and catch them about halfway up, getting back home. And you do have to understand that the the group that he's pursuing has been in battle now for months, and uh, they're probably anxious to get back home, they're tired even though victorious, they have, uh, they have been worn, worn out, per se. So he divides his forces by them tonight, he, or divides his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeats them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he is able to defeat the forces and then um, basically chase them out of the area. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So he frees all the people that have been taken captive and uh, all the possessions. And if you remember what we learned about the area where Lot was living is very lush, very green, very wealthy. Um, There was a lot of uh, material of, of value that was in that area. And so it isn't just people, it's a, it's a very rich area. And so quite a lot to be carried back by Abram. So now it's Abram's turn to have a parade. As would be normal in that culture, uh, we see from verses 17 through 24, um, 
the the result of this victory of Abram and who all shows up as would be normal in that time. But jumping back up, I do want to just touch base on uh, the Amorites. The Amorites would have been descendants of Ham. It would have been, they would have been, uh, they would have been uh, basically a synonym for the Canaanites. And we all kind of know what, who the Canaanites are, and the people that Moses is giving the book of Genesis to would be aware of who the Amorites are, who these Canaanites are. They would be aware that uh, these Amorites are people that they're about to go in and conquer, that they're going to go in and take the land away. Uh, in fact, it, it mentions them in chapter 15 um, that... There's going to be a time when God judges those people, and he's just waiting, in fact, for the, their wickedness or their sin to be totally built up so that they deserve the full wrath that God's going to pour out on them. But in this situation, we have Abram living in the world, living among the Canaanites, living among the Amorite, and doing so at peace, and doing so in such a way that they can be allies, which I think is kind of interesting, and would have been even more interesting to the people that, that Moses has given this book to. Moses has given them, um, is giving this to the people that are going to go and conquer these people. And he's saying, yeah, your father Abram was, was friends with them and they helped him at this point in time. Um, God has, had not yet judged Abram. Um, and Abram has been promised this land, the land that these others hold. Abram's still basically uh, a, um, not a vagrant, a nomad, thank you. That was actually the exact term. He's a sojourner in the land. He's a nomad. He's, he's pasturing his flocks, wandering from field to field, using up the resources there, going to the next field, and becoming quite wealthy and, and quite large in his household, as we've seen, but still is a sojourner in the land versus the people in, uh, of Israel as they're getting ready to enter the land. But it is, it's just a, a little foreshadowing that's going to come in the rest of the chapter that would have been shocking uh, to the people of Israel that Moses is giving this, this story to, is, is written this narrative for. So their sin and, and a subsequent discuss, or destruction is mentioned in chapter 15, but for right now, the people are kind of being led along in this story about the people we're about to go and destroy, Abram was actually working with. And we see this referral to the Rephaim, uh, the, the tall people, the the giants that are in the land, and uh, certainly the Amorites would have been considered in, in history, uh, if you go back and look at secular history, they would have been considered very tall, uh, nomadic people themselves, but here we see them settled in an area, uh, and also fierce fighters. And certainly when the 12 spies go into the land of Israel, they run into people such as this, the Rephaim, the tall people, the Amorites that are there. Um, they're nomadic people, uh, shepherds, almost like the barbarians that come and take Rome. It's that type of, of people. Um, again, we talked about his wealth. But we also see something interesting in Abram in that he's the leader of these people. He's the commander. He comes up with a very specific plan and he executes his plan to success. 
He is able to see the situation. He responds to his, his brother in need. And he is able to take charge of the forces. He's able to put together a scheme that allows him to go after Lot successfully because he executes his scheme just as he planned. So we're getting some insight into who this Abram is, what type of leader he is. Yeah. So yeah, if you look at the example of Saul, who is who the people who is the people's choice, he's the people's choice awards winner, um, and he ends up being somebody who just follows whatever the people want to do. Here we have Abram, who not only leads his own people, but all those around him recognize his leadership and fall in line underneath him. And we see that by the by this kind of this return party that takes place in verse 17 through 24, the position that Abram has. And I think that's why this story is put in here is because, uh, because God wants the people of Israel to understand who Abram was. So far, we've seen in chapters 12 and 13 that Abram doesn't always act faithfully. Even though he has faith that is counted to him as righteousness, he sometimes doubts God. And he seems to trust God in the really, really big things, and he's, he sometimes is lax in the smaller things. So we see that so far this, this Abram that's held up by the people of Israel as being, you know, he is our father, we're all descended from him, that's what makes us great is there's this great man. Moses is, is painting the picture of who Abram is as being not a flawless individual. In fact, so far we've seen that even when Abram was unfaithful, God still blessed him and made him wealthy. The Egyptians gave him wealth as he left, even though he was, he was in the wrong in that doing, not only to the Egyptians, but to God himself, not trusting God. And so we're seeing this picture of who Abram is and ultimately who the people of Israel are. So we see here in chapter 14, a similar thing. We're learning about who Abram is and so far it looks good. And now we're going to see who Abram is compared to the rest of the leaders of the world, as well as who he is compared to this enigmatic character, Melchizedek, that's going to be introduced here. We could go down the rabbit hole of Melchizedek, and we'll, we'll do it a little bit, so you have a, a, at least something you can hold on to when this name comes up. But we'll, we'll try to avoid the crazy that you can get into when pursuing this. So let's start in verse 17, and let's just read through to 24. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of, the God, of God most high. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram the, of God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing except what young men, what young men have eaten 
And the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskal, and Mamre, let them take their share. Pronouns are important here. <laughs> and getting a handle on what, uh, who he is, every time it says he, probably the biggest question there is at the end of verse 20, he gave him a tenth of all. But we learn that the flow of this is that it's, it's a tithe from Abram to Melchizedek. And that's how I believe the original language, it would have been more clear. But for us, it's a little bit, a little bit daunting trying to decide who he is in these things. Um, certainly in verse 19, we have blessed be Abraham of God most high. And then the, a continuation of this title of God, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. It's not Abram that possesses heaven and earth. So just be careful as you're reading through that. Sometimes the English translations do not give us the full effect of what's going on here. So after obtaining their victory, basically the generals return to their land, and they've kind of gone a little bit further south of where Abram was, up by Sea of Galilee. Now they're down closer to where Jerusalem is, near where Melchizedek is, and the king of Sodom meets them, and Abram and the other uh, Amorites are there. And they're met by this priest. And they're greeted by the redeemed kings. And, and the spoils of the war are all there. And all the people that Abram has freed are all there. And the first interaction we see here is this king Melchizedek. Does anyone know what Mel, Melchizedek means? Melchizedek. King of righteousness. So, Melek would be king, Zedek, righteousness. So we have the king of righteousness, and he's from where? Salem, which means what? Does anyone? Peace. So we have, we have the king of righteousness, who's from the, the town of peace. He's the king over peace. He's the king of righteousness. And there's wonderful foreshadowing of who Jesus Christ is. And we see here that he is a priest of God Most High. He is a priest of El- Elion, which would be the God, the God Most High. But we don't, we don't get a whole lot more of, of who Melchizedek is other than he's just this, he's just a priest. But we do see that he's worthy of Abram's tithe. So why would Abram tithe to Melchizedek when he returns? Why would you tithe to any priest when you return with your spoil? And this may be, he gives him a tenth of everything Abram himself has. It could be just the tenth of the spoil. I think the assumption is a tenth of the spoil goes to Melchizedek. Where, where was Melchizedek during the fighting? He's in Salem, right? So why would you give a tenth of what you have to the priest? Whether, whether he's the priest of God Most High or whether he's the peace, priest of your pagan religion, why would you return and give that? To say thanks for what? For victory. So Abram is giving who the credit for victory here? God. Yeah, he's giving credit to God Most High. Here's the priest, the mediator between me and God Most High. I'm going to give a tenth to him. So Abram acknowledges that, that Melchizedek is above him. And we also see here that Melchizedek... 
does what for Abram then in verse 19? Yeah, he blesses him. And this is more pronoun confusion, but it's clarified for us. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That explains why the tithe comes then at the end of verse 20. So he's, he's, he is actually in a position where he can grant Abram a blessing from God. Giving you another idea of the position of Melchizedek. He is, he, is in, he is worthy of Abram's tithe, and he is in a position where he's able to bless Abram. And we find over in Psalms 110.4, a reference to this occasion. And in Psalms 110, verse... For the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In a psalm from David. And if you go back up to verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And, and here we have the confusion of why is David saying that someone who comes after him is his Lord if he didn't truly come before him. And further on down, we have this idea that, well, that's because the Lord that comes after him, the king that comes after him is actually an eternal king. He's in the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever. Well, is Melchizedek like God and present forever? And there's a good argument here for uh, the literary device that's used here, and that is to not give us any history of Melchizedek before this or any, history, or any of the subsequent years of Melchizedek after that. Melchizedek appears on the scene without any beginning, and he's, we're never told his end. We'll get into that a little bit, but please understand, we don't know a lot about Melchizedek, and you would, be, you would want to be really careful that you don't fill in the gaps with your own assumptions and, and with things that we just don't know clearly about. Other than to say we know nothing about what happened before or what happened after, but there is a lot that's going on in this little scene. So no beginning, no end, no parents. And that becomes very, very important. That's drawn off or that's drawn out by David. And then Hebrews also touches on some of these things. Hebrews touches on something even more important, I think. So what covenant is there? What understanding is there between God and Melchizedek that Melchizedek gets to be a priest? Can you just declare yourself a priest of God most high? Can you righteously decide that I am a priest of God most high now? I will be the intermediary. We can say, no, not at all. Those of you who, who know your Old Testaments know that there's a lot that goes into what it takes to be a priest. Who decides that someone is a priest? Well, we're going to find out that it's God. God is the one who decides who priests are and who they aren't. In fact, God gives us Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers to help understand what it takes to be a priest for his specific people in the context of the people of Israel. But this is a priest that's outside of any covenant or, or law or any sort of genetics or any decision on the part of Abraham 
or Moses or Aaron or anything like that. He's a priest outside of that. If you turn over to Leviticus 8, and we're building into the, the argument that Hebrews 7 is going to make about what's going on here. Again, I think the New Testament is going to be a wonderful commentary to help us understand what's, what's actually going on. But let's continue. So the reason we turn to Leviticus 8 is because Leviticus 8 has been given to the people of Israel at the time that Genesis is given to them. So the rules of how to become a priest and how to consecrate a priest are actually given to the people of Israel, maybe not codified, maybe not written down on the scroll yet, but it's been given to Moses. He's explained to the people, this is what it takes to be a priest. And just, we're not going to read through this, but just understand this is, chapter 8 is just what it takes to consecrate a priest. If you turn over to Numbers 3, Numbers 3 is that it's the Levites that are supposed to be the priest, and this is all of their responsibility. In fact, technically the firstborn male of every son of Israel was to be a gift to God to serve him and instead, God says, instead of taking your firstborn, I'm just going to take one of the tribes, and that tribe will be the Levites. And out of those people, I will call my priests. And out of those people, they'll take care of the tabernacle and all the religious things. Those are two separate, two separate responsibilities, by the way. One line of the Levites were priests, and the rest of the Levites took care of things, um, such as carrying all of the tabernacle once it was taken apart, setting it up, and then providing all the water, all the wood, everything necessary to do this amazing, complex, uh, sacrificial system that's set up. And that's kind of important because if you turn over to November, uh, November, number 16, we have Korah's rebellion. So you have Korah, who's in verse 1, the son of Ishar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, the son of Dathan and Abiram, the son of Eliab, and, um, or I'm sorry, um, he's the son of Levi, and he's with Dathan, Abiram, who are the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, their sons of Reuben. So you have Korah, who is a Levite, but he is not in the line of priests, not happy about the fact that he doesn't get to be a priest, is basically how this works out. And he gets some of his friends who are Reubenites, who are saying, yeah, why is it that, that, that um, the sons of Aaron and his descendants are priests, they're being slighted. Without going into it, God basically says, um, bring them up to me and I'm going to kill them all. <laughs> and Moses is like, whoa, 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 there's a lot of people standing around him that are going to get hurt if you do that. And he goes, okay, then separate the people out. And so he separates the people out and God says, I'm the one who decides who are priests and not, and you're rebelling. Ground opens up, swallows them and their families, closes up and kills them all. God takes who his priests are very, very seriously. So the Israelites would have known these stories. They would have seen what happened to Korah when he rebelled. And all of a sudden, they're given this story where... Abram meets a priest of God Most High. 
And they're like, wait a second, this guy isn't a Levite. That had to be in their mind. And, and so is there this big sacrificial system that we have to go through as a people, as a people group, as a nation to, be, to have God dwelling within our midst? Here's everything we have to do to keep God from breaking out and slaughtering all of us for our sin. Um, but we don't see that going on here. And it is rather interesting. Here is this priest that is outside of the Levitical system. But he interacts with the Levitical system. Well, how does he interact with the Levitical system? Anyone know? How is the Levitical system interacted here by Melchizedek? And what's his position compared to the Levitical priests? So we talked a little bit about headship. How is it that I can know that Jesus Christ represents me when he's on the cross bearing the full weight of sin. Is it not that he is our head? In, in theological terms, he's our federal head. He has declared that I am your head. I am the one who will represent you. Kind of the same way Adam represents us. You have to remember that in Adam, all of sin... All of us are sinners because of our relationship to Adam. Well, what's our relationship to Adam? Every single one of us in here, what's your relationship to Adam? You're descended from him. So biologically speaking, we're all related to Adam. And in a sense, we were in Adam's loins when he sinned. That's more of a seminal, what's referred to as seminal headship. Now, there's some ways that you could certainly argue that Adam was also our federal head, um, and that's what led us to sin. And I don't want to get into that discussion as much as what Hebrews 7 goes into. So if we turn to Hebrews 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So just be aware that what Hebrews is doing is doing what you and I just did. The author of Hebrews has gone back and looked at the text and is telling us what was in that text, just as we are able to do. It's not that Hebrews is now, the author of the Hebrews is giving us a new idea of what happened or changing what the original was. He's, he's teaching us what was already there that we could learn. And verse 3 goes on. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy. That without genealogy is a good summary of no father or mother. He doesn't have a genealogy. And certainly the Hebrews, at the time when the Hebrews is, that Hebrews is written, would have understand why that's important. Just like the, the Israelites that Moses is writing to would have understand why genealogy is important. He's had this neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains at peace perpetually. When they look back at Melchizedek, they don't see any beginning or end for him. He has always been the, a priest. That's all they know him to be, as a priest of God perpetually. Just like the Son of God is a priest. Now observe how this great man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those Indeed, of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, 
although these are descended from Abram, Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So we see that, that very important that we've already seen back in Hebrews or back in, back in Genesis. We see that not only is a tithe paid, but a blessing is given. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. There is no ending, no recording is how I would read that. And I think the original language here in Hebrews would also point to that. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So we see that Melchizedek interacts with the Levitical line through Abraham. That in Abraham was the future line of the Levitical priests, and they are actually the ones who receive tithes from the people of Israel are now paying a tithe to Melchizedek. And I think the people of Israel back in Genesis, as they're being given this text, knew and understood what just took place. That here is a priest that's even above Aaron and his grandsons. Having no beginning or end, it's not based upon, it's an eternal priesthood. It's not based upon any covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's not based upon the law. It's just that here is a priest that's outside of this that we are actually subordinate to. Pointing them, should be pointing them to the idea that there is a priest coming that's above. There's a better way than this law that we've been handed that none of us can keep. So verse 11, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the necessity there takes place a change of law also. The one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. So our Lord here, now we're talking about Jesus Christ. He's descended from Judah. He's a, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of law, of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for is attested of him, and we go back to Psalms now, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of the weakness and uselessness. The law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God and inasmuch as it is not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said of him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus became the guarantor of a better covenant. And it goes on talking about that, but for our, for our intents and purposes here, the people are getting a lesson in what the law is and what the importance of the law is. It is beyond um, coming to God isn't through the law. The law that they've been handed is not the ultimate. The ultimate is this eternal priesthood that they're relying upon. 
It's looking forward to, because Melchizedek, by the time they've received this, is gone now. Melchizedek isn't part of their daily lives. They have the Levitical priests, and they need to realize that the Levitical priesthood is beneath this holy, eternal priesthood of God that we should be looking towards. They're getting a sense of what the law really is there for, and it's not to make any of them perfect. It's not to make any of them worthy of God. There's so much more we could do there and we need to not. So, get back onto my notes. So we see tithing to Melchizedek and Abram declares him to be above any of his own descendants as priests. We see that Christ himself in Hebrews falls out of this Levitical line that the Levites weren't going to lead to, to a priest. So when Jesus Christ is... is uh, king and prophet and priest, his priestliness does not come through the fact that he is a Levite. It comes from the fact that he belongs to a better priesthood that's outside of the law. Christ certainly fulfills all of the law as any good Jewish man would have at his time, obeying the law. But do understand that Jesus Christ is a priest outside the law and he's perfectly righteous. And anytime Jesus Christ obeyed the law, anytime his parents brought him, brought in sacrifices for their son when he was born. Anytime Jesus Christ did anything that was to show that you were making yourself right with God, he had no need to do it. He was perfect already. He's an eternal priest. But he certainly followed the law and did what the law requested because he lived as a Jew within that context. So Christ himself, his priesthood is outside of the law. Certainly the law, certainly the priesthood that God gives these people, the Levitical priest line is to help the people stay holy or help them keep separate from the people around them, help them show that they are separated, that they are sanctified to God, that uh, um, they, uh, even though they are sinners, they can somehow come to God and that there's a mediation with God. We get all of that outside of the law, outside of the Levitical priesthood, because we have Christ, because we have an eternal priest. Just as Christ is not, just as we don't need the law, we don't need Levitical priests to draw near to God. Uh, the law itself isn't what made Christ righteous. The law isn't what made Christ a priest. It isn't what made Christ righteous. Jesus Christ, when he came, was righteous to begin with. The law pointed to his righteousness in his keeping of the law, but it didn't, he didn't gain righteousness while he was here. All his good works, all his following the law were showing that he was, in fact, righteous. It was a test, a testament to who he was. He is an eternal priest. He is eternally righteous. And we are sanctified and set apart <clears throat> by Christ and his sacrifice, if you continue to read in Hebrews on to Hebrews 10.10, 10, that is how we are sanctified by a people, is by the sacrifice of this perfect Christ. We are made clean by his blood in Romans 10.14, and we have access to God through him as our high priest in Hebrews 10.19-21, apart from the law. So, back in Genesis 14, the introduction of Melchizedek 
helps the people of Israel understand Abram's relationship to Abram's relationship to to the Levitical system. That Abram is in the line of the Levitical system. It comes out of Abraham, but there is something even greater and bigger than that, and that's this eternal priesthood that's represented in Melchizedek and is to come in Christ. Abram also not only takes his place in relation to uh, the eternal priesthood, but it also takes his place in relation to the kings of this world. We see that it is Abram that is uh, the one who puts together uh, the plan, brings together all of the men that are the kings that go off. It is Abram that gets credit for the victory. And as a relationship to that, the story continues that Sodom wants to give, the king of Sodom wants to give Abram uh, the spoils of the war. And Abram clearly defines who he is and who his people are that they are not, they do not owe anything to anyone else around them for the wealth that he has. That, that the people of God are going to be made great by God himself. Not, they are not going to allow other people to say that they have made Abram great. It'll be clearly that God is the one who has made them great. We see that as they leave Egypt in the great exodus, that it isn't that the Egyptians love the Israelites so much that they give them everything. It's that God has so tormented them through the plagues that they give them all of their riches that they carry out because of what God has done, not because of anything the people have done. And Abram is making it very clear that not only is it not what these kings have done, the king of Sodom hasn't made me and my, my descendants great. And it's not my actions that have made my descendants great and my nation great. It is God. And so he's setting it up that God will get the glory for that even though Abram himself is given credit for the victory after what God has done through the priest Melchizedek. Abram's keeping his eyes on God in this victory rather than the spoils and possessions of this world. And then an interesting note here is that he does take some of the spoils and, and it shows that he has a right to the spoils because he, he gives certain conditions that need to be met by the king of Sodom. So Abram still in his position of authority here, tells what, uh, what he can do with the spoils. And showing what the Bible mentions in other places, it's very important, and that is that a workman is worthy of his wages. And he says, these three kings that came with me, they need to get their share. And the men that went on this battle, they need to have all of their needs, all of their day-to-day needs met. So he's showing that, that he does understand some of the basic truths of, of what's important here. And he allows for Sodom to bless these other kings with the spoils, as well as making sure all of his men have something to eat and their, their needs supplied for. Again, very interesting in light of the fact that these are, these are men whose descendants, Abram's descendants, will crush and drive out of the land and annihilate. So I think, again, just just to take one step back, I think what we're seeing here is, again, an explanation to the people of Israel of who they are in Abram, what Abram's role is, and what God is doing for them as a people, as they are represented by Abram. That his position among the, the people of the world was that he was a leader, that he 
could make decisions and have others follow, but he doesn't tie himself to any of these other uh, kings, to any of these other kingdoms. He Certainly they were allies for a time, but he is still separated and different than them. And ultimately, though, we also see that Abram, even though he is the chosen one and his descendants are going to become the chosen line that Christ comes out of, Abram himself is, as a physical human being, subject to this eternal priesthood as represented by Melchizedek. The priesthood that comes out of Abram, even that is not something to be boasted in by Abram. We'll go ahead and pray and and be done. Lord, we just thank you that we have an opportunity again to turn to your word as the great challenges are presented here, even in this text, Lord, in this brief mentioning of Melchizedek, Lord, but I pray that that will drive us to a better understanding of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us and uh, the greatness of who he is as our mediator and as our high priest. Lord, I pray that that would be the nugget that we hold on to, that uh, beyond anything um, in the Mosaic law, the old covenant, that none of us could keep that law, Lord. None of us could be righteous through that, or they wouldn't keep sacrificing over and over and over again, Lord. But instead, you have sent us a perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice that can pay for our sins once and for all. And he evidences that, Lord, by reigning for all eternity in heaven. And I pray that we would be encouraged by that today and look forward to when we do get to uh, gather together with him as one people in one body and celebrate the great victory he has won for us. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.